This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Welcome back to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. This is the second part of our two-part series with Kirkland Capital, and we'll be covering bridge debt today with Brock Freeman. Really excited to get into that. Don't miss out. Stick around till the end. Today on the download, the big news over the weekend, I think everyone's been hearing about, are bank failures. Now, this is certainly not something that uh, you know people like to talk about. It's definitely not a pleasant subject, but uh, it definitely is something that needs to be covered. So uh, there were three big bank failures over the weekend, and the two that are most notable are the fact that they are the two largest, or the second and third largest in U.S. history behind the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, these are immensely large banks, but they are relatively insular to the to the finances of tech startups in the tech industry, which if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been paying attention to financial markets over the past year and a half to two years, you know that the tech sector is being absolutely hammered. The two main bank failures over the weekend are Silicon Valley Bank and uh, Signature Bank, which are, again, largely to do in the uh, tech and financial industries, uh, Silicon Valley Bank being a large part of a lot of tech startups where they did their administrative banking, where they did their payroll and other types of things out of notable account holders there being uh, the likes of people like Roku, the streaming device giant had almost $400 million in a single corporate checking account there. Now, the big issue with this is that FDIC coverage only covers deposits up to a quarter million dollars. However, the FDIC has invoked a clause allowing them to fully insure all deposits of any depositor there at that bank. So good news for the depositors there, especially for the more institutional holders there that are going to be recouping the funds out of that. And essentially what happened with this bank was an old-fashioned bank run. The underlying uh, investments that the uh, bank had and things like treasury bills becoming less valuable as interest rates rose. So the ability for them to sell their assets to cover the withdrawals that were being made for the bank wasn't able to be sustained and they had to shutter their doors. And the FDIC taking receivership of that bank on Friday evening and then as of Sunday Sunday afternoon, also announcing the uh, enhanced coverage that the FDIC will be offering to depositors on that front. And then with regard to Signature Bank being the third largest bank failure that the United States has ever seen, that one is a touch bit more complicated insofar as that they were heavily involved in the cryptocurrency space, which again, if you've ever covered, uh, if you ever watched this podcast, you know, again, is a very, very volatile sector. We'll be covering the bank failures in a special edition podcast next week to go more in depth with that. But just suffice it to say, the financial markets have been in a great state of flux over the past few days with the bank failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Another set of bad news coming out of the tech sector, which again, further illustrates the problems that this part of the market has been having, is that Meta, or the parent company of Facebook, has announced an additional round of layoffs which will be affecting over 10,000 jobs at Meta Facebook. Now, this is in response to another round of layoffs that they had earlier this year, which was another 10,000 jobs. Uh, they have announced a plan to hire an additional 5,000 roles, but that's a net 15,000 job loss from just one company in Silicon Valley. So the the 
issues that are kind of being a little bit more systemic in the tech sector are certainly not going away. And we are kind of seeing those uh, firmly implant themselves into this market segment. So if you're looking to invest in the tech sector, now maybe not the best time to do it. But again, you know, if there is blood in the streets, buy property. So maybe now is a good time to get in there and get some uh, more bargain basement deals on, on different investments or just, you know, be able to buy at the bottom and hopefully be able to ride that up a little bit. But we'd like to round out this segment with a little bit of good news. North American electric vehicle production numbers have increased. So numbers that are coming out of manufacturers such as GM and Tesla have indicated that the consumption and the production rates in the United States are starting to kind of meet in the middle with the sales numbers and production numbers both rising over last year. We are seeing a rise in new electric vehicle sales as a set portion of the whole sector up from 4.7% in 2021 to a total of 7% in 2022. So definitely some good news for electric vehicle manufacturers and manufacturers of vehicles in general. GM also posting a record year last year. So manufacturing with regard to vehicles, definitely up, maybe a good place to look if you're looking to move some capital out of the tech sector. This has been The Download. Today on the what is, what is a shelf offering? A shelf offering is a SEC provision that allows for an equity issuer, such as a corporation or anyone that's going to be selling stock on a stock exchange, to register a new issue of securities without having to sell the entire issue at once. This means that a company potentially is allowed to say they are going to sell, let's say, a million shares, but only release 300,000 of them at once. This will help to effectively reduce the amount of shock that a market sees and helping to control wild price fluctuations in a particular issuer's stock price, while also allowing them not to have to re-register and refile every time they'd like to issue a new block of stock. Companies can do this over a certain amount of time, and that has to be done at a maximum of three years. This is a shelf offering, and this has been The What Is. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Podcast. This is the other portion of our two-part series with Kirkland Capital Group, You know, focusing first on uh, due diligence. And now, uh, something that I'm really interested in because it's part of my career that I've always found People have done, you know, pretty well in it, but it's a little bit understood and maybe has a little bit of a of a dark cloud over it. Is the the topic of bridge debt uh, for most people thinking of, you know, financing whether that's individually on a property or a particular deal or commercial commercial debt. Uh, most people think, hey, you know, like we have one block of debt and that's what we look like. But more often than not, when it comes to any type of investment, there's unforeseen things. There's need for additional capital. There's need for additional debt which doesn't have to be a bad thing per se, but understanding where it's used, how to understand someone that is not overreaching their leverage capacity and also how to make money with this stuff. Because, you know, from looking at an investment side of saying, okay, well, my investment is taking on bridge debt, but more to the point of saying, hey, let's invest in actually doing this bridge debt and obviously how that can be applied, you know, to people that aren't overutilizing debt, I think is a really powerful tool because there's a lot of money to be made in this particular sector. But with that said, there's always 
with any type of new thing or more niche markets, there's a lot to look at that maybe isn't uh, as well understood by a lot of people, which goes into why we're doing this as a two-parter with due diligence being a very core focus of any type of investment, but especially when looking at something that isn't looked at by a lot of people as a viable investment opportunity. So I'm really happy to have Brock Freeman with Kirkland Capital Group on today to talk about some of the joys and risks of uh, real estate bridge debt and you know what that is, what it looks like from an investment standpoint, what kind of returns people are seeing on this. So again, Brock, thank you very much for being on with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you kind of you know came to be in your current position here with Kirkland Capital Group, and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Uh let me uh, start out by uh, saying thanks for for hosting me. And uh, this is just kind of my real estate debt. Uh, it's been a lot of my career. So uh, it's excited to, that people are really turning and starting to see this as a, a great investment vehicle, which I think it is. I mean, I'm personally invested uh, a lot of my net worth in this as well. So kind of um, putting my money where my mouth is. Um, let, let me, let me put off about me a little bit here and let me, let me skip to the next slide, which is kind of uh, a little bit fun because as things get a little fraught, uh, a little volatile out there with, with investment, uh, this came out the other day and I thought this was, was pretty good that investors are turning towards commercial real estate debt to counter near-term uncertainty. Uh, so that you're seeing a lot of this in the marketplace where, uh, instead of the, you know, they're, they're pulling out of public markets, they're pulling a little bit away from equity or being a little more careful there, but you got to put your money somewhere, particularly in this high, uh, inflationary period that we have. So bridge debt or real estate debt is a, is a great place to consider, uh, of course, and we'll, we'll dig in to see whether that meets your needs or not as an investor. Uh, a little bit about me, um, <clears throat> is I, I came from a long uh, history of underwriting auditing loans for multiple different lenders. I have a tech background as well. I know that seems kind of like, oh, wait a second, which one it is it? But actually what I did was build lending systems later on after being an underwriter for uh, some different companies. In, in fact, uh, this is going to date me a little bit, but I actually built the first web-based Indian loan underwriting system back in the in the mid '90s, for uh, uh, a mortgage bank at the time, and again a non-bank lender. So, um, in my background is finance, but I've taken a turn, you know, in doing a lot of tech and process stuff as well. So that's a little bit about me uh, and my background. So, uh, moving on, let's let's kind of dig in what we're going to talk about today and what I want to queue up. So. I think it's always fun to start out with what's good stuff. So let's do that. Let's talk about the joys of it um, and where it can help, where it's, I think it's a great investment on that side of things. I think there's some task considerations we need to have as well. <clears throat> but then afterwards, let's give you some things to look at and consider as risks, because there's a lot of different uh, investments, uh, opportunities out there in the debt space, and they're not all the same. So let's kind of walk through those. You know, how do you determine what are the, what are the, some things to look at with that? Uh, sound, does that sound uh, like a good plan, Alex? Fantastic. Let's dig into it. All right, let's dig in. So let's talk about the joys next. <clears throat> uh, so one of the first things I want to talk about is, you know, in, in general, debt is lower on the capital stack. 
Now, depending on where you're familiar with, I know that in some other things like VC, they talk about, oh, well, no, debt's the highest on the capital stack, therefore. But in the real estate world, we're either upside down or right side up, depending on where you originally came from. But in, in real estate, we generally talk about debt as, as lower on the capital stack. That means it's 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 situated, it's, it's foundational. You think of a building going up, you know, that, that type of thing. So uh, you might have anywhere from, 65 or lower up to maybe 80 percent uh you know on on first lien debt but the nice thing about debt here is that you know you've got someone else now taking that um more risky top equity percentage and of course in here if you're uh you're considering what where i want to be for safety wise where if things are volatile of course the price or the value of that asset may change but the reality is from a debt perspective a lot of times you're 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 more insulated uh from that range of an uncertainty which is a nice place to be particularly when we're in in, in a more volatile uh period of time so and then preferred equity or sometimes they call it mezzanine debt seconds these are, of course, always going to be a little riskier. When we talk about what bridge debt is, and let me talk about that for a second. So bridge debt typically is not necessarily where it is in the capital stack on the, on the debt side. It's more of when it is. So when I talk about when, you know, you're talking about bridge as, a, as something that's put in place temp for a short period of time. It can be anywhere from as low as a one to three months sometimes, up to three, maybe three years on larger larger deals. Uh, where they need a little bit more time, but it's to get you from maybe a purchase where that you're not ready for that long-term, uh, the long-term uh, financing yet, or you're not wanting to get yourself into a prepayment penalty because maybe you're going to do a refinance in a year or two once you've stabilized the property. Uh, or maybe there's a problem with the property. Uh, it could be vacancy issues or some deferred maintenance, or maybe you've, uh, for instance, done some uh, done some things to the property, but you need to get cash out. And sometimes long-term lenders are a little bit more conservative on cash out than bridge lenders. And so you use that bridge to get some cash back out to pay yourself back for the money that you've dumped in the property. Uh, and then once that's sort of settled out, and uh, th then you can go and do a long-term financing. Yeah, it makes sense. So with regard to that, where do you kind of see, like maybe let's say uh, – you know, where, where did you see, let's say like the last three years or maybe like, you know, like let's go back a couple of years. Um, let's mm -hmm. say like, you know, 2019, 2021, uh, what kind of areas were you seeing people utilize uh, bridge debt then, and then kind of coming into the more current of let's say 22 through now, where's kind of the market shifted on where people are needing to use this in their operations of these different types of uh, players that are needing bridge debt. As I kind of alluded to before, it's anybody who needs speed of execution. So, for instance, a lot of lenders can take three long-term lenders, especially banks, or let's say you go do a Fannie Freddie loan. I mean, or an SBA if you're even looking for your an owner-occupied, so to say, uh, purchase. You you can you're talking three to six months sometimes to close a distressed seller or maybe you're getting get a good deal, they're not going to wait around. So a lot of times your private uh, non-bank lenders are going to be able to move much, much faster and help 
take that deal down for that investor. Now, is it going to be more expensive? Absolutely. But the, the, the premise here is that they're getting a good deal because maybe it's distressed or because the seller is in a hurry, they're, they're willing to sell at a lower price and, and you've got a buyer who knows that the value is there. They just need to execute quickly. Sure. Uh, the, uh, and, the, and again, the other reasons are uh, there's a lot of properties out there and we see this a lot, you know, in our loan flow where you've had sort of a, a mom and pop or, or somebody has held on to that property for decades sometimes. And, you know, after a while, they just, they, they're not really doing the maintenance. They haven't done renovations in years. Uh, so there's a lot of upside. There's a lot of meat on the bone, so to say, for an investor to go in there and renovate uh, and do a lot of things in there. So they don't want to have long-term debt yet. Uh, and and may, maybe the long-term bank or lender doesn't even want to do it because of that deferred maintenance or because the vacancy factor is too high. That's, again, where you're going to have a lender, uh, a private lender come in and do that bridge debt and then allow them to exit from that into a long-term uh, uh, a loan once once the stuff is done. Awesome. Great. Uh, one, one thing I'll mention on here, too, is, you know, again, this is where from an investor standpoint, if you're looking for lower risk, this is why here that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're getting that lower risk because you're not going to be the first to lose if something goes wrong with, with that property. Uh, and, and I talk about that a little bit on the next slide here with steady valuation, that if you really are looking at that debt position, it's a great way to take a position on something, get fairly steady returns, but you're not necessarily betting like, oh yeah, I know that property is going to go up a bunch. Like even if that property just stayed the same or let's say it lost 10 or 15%, you're still going to be in a great position as a first lien debt holder or investor. Now, caveat, of course, and this is my thing on the bottom there, depending on the debt amount versus the value of the asset. So, and we'll we'll talk about that in, in as we dig into the risk a little bit. But that is something to always watch for: is what is the valuation versus the debt. So, I guess I guess I have a question, um, and this just kind of goes to my understanding and and in general of bridge debt. But when you're coming into this, um, you know, I would are are these bridge loans coming in? You know, after property acquisition. So, when would there already not be institutional debt associated with the underlying property? So then, where is this debt placed on the you know on, on the stack? Is it going to be first position, second position? How is that actually handled uh, with regard to looking specifically at bridge debt for these types of properties? If you're using it, bridge can be used for purchase, so a purchase money loan, or it can be used. Uh, you know, as a refinance, a cash out type of type of deal. So obviously, if it's used for purchase, then of course that bridge debt is in place from the beginning, and then it's going to be taken out by a long term lender. Whether that's agency debt, if it's a larger loan, whether it's going to be a bank or credit union, if it's smaller, or one of the other non bank long term lenders out there. Uh, if it's used afterwards, a lot of times there's there may be uh, maybe they went to uh, another private lender to to get a, a first to begin with, or they've held the, held the loan for a long time and paid it down enough and they need cash out. Uh, or most long-term lenders are, they don't want to accept, let's say, okay, let me just give you a, a live example here. Let's say you purchase a property today 
You go in there and you make a bunch of renovations and you purchase that property, let's say for a million dollars. Okay. Uh, and then you did a bunch of renovations. Now it's worth all of a sudden 1.5 because you made those renovations six months later. You fix a bunch of things, whatever you got it done. Long-term lenders generally are not going to accept this kind of uh, six-month new valuation at 1.5 million. They're going to want to use that original purchase price valuation of 1 million. So it's not going to be super helpful to go in there and try to refinance to long-term. Again, that's where you go to a a private non-bank lender for a bridge loan is you're saying, hey, who's going to accept my new valuation? Well, we'll go in there or a private lender like us is going to go in there and do a new valuation ourselves and say, okay, yep, you're right. We see you put the money and work in this. It's now worth 1.5. We'll base our new loan on that new value. So it's called, you know, basically a no season or, or low seasoning type of loan to give you that money back that maybe you just dumped in there. So you, so the investor can move on and, and maybe go buy another property and do it again. Uh, and then six months, 12 months later, uh, when a long-term lender is going to accept that new value and the, 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 uh, the property as a, uh, the, the returns that they're getting out of that, then they can move to long-term debt. Okay, so just to make sure I'm clear, and this is where kind of the terminology from some of the areas that I deal in differs from this a little bit. When you're talking about bridge debt, you're talking about a whole new debt package coming in to, you know, remove another debt package to be in that first position, not necessarily like, you know, where I deal in sometimes it's like gap or transactional funding where you might mm -hmm. come in as a second or an unsecured lender. You're talking mm -hmm. about saying, hey, this is still short term debt, but we're wiping out the underlying coming in as a first just with a much more truncated period on the loan, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Now that may not be true. What that's why I mentioned earlier, like bridge is more about the time period that they're short term. They're they're to get you between you know a purchase or or some period, and when you can put on long term debt. It's more about timing. That's what bridge debt in real estate is. It's not necessarily where you are in the capital stack. So an important question to consider as an investor in it is to ask whoever you're you're investing with or whatever fund. Do you do seconds? Do you do, you know, are you do putting, uh, are you allowing seconds? Are you always in first position? Because obviously, if you're doing a second on top of an existing first, that could be a much more risky position to be in. Yeah, exactly. And and not to say that there aren't strategies for that to make considerable amounts of money, but just like with anything, mm -hmm. the 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 return should be commensurate with the additional risk profile that you're taking on. And yep. also if you're looking for this, you know, varying degrees of, of risk in this, you know, do you want to take on that additional risk? Is the juice worth the squeeze for you as the investor in that? Mm -hmm. And again, yeah. just kind of from the, the angle that I come from on, you know, seeing a lot of more of the, uh, you know, the fix and flip rehab, single family land, small, like single family land development, mm -hmm. the terminology is a little bit different. So just in case anyone's coming in from that kind of background, um, you know, what we're talking about here is a little bit different mm -hmm. on the more of the commercial real estate, commercial real estate syndication side of doing these types of loans to these people and how that can be a functional investment strategy for you, like, you know, what you have at Kirkland. So yeah. again, just at least for my own edification, anyone listening, mm -hmm. coming from our side, just understand the the difference there. Yeah, let's uh, we'll dive into it a little bit with the risk part of it, but let's let's talk about one one other bigger joy here in the enhanced return and strong income sure. that we get. It's it's been if you're looking at how do I want to say if you're looking at wanting to generate income from your investments on a more steady basis, uh, you know maybe you're 
in your, you know, fifties or sixties, and you're thinking about, Hey, I, I need to kind of move from that betting on asset valuation, whether it's stocks, whatever, and going up. And I'm looking more for, Hey, I just want to generate steady returns. E either that's just to compound it or just because I need it, need it as income. It's, it's become really difficult to do that in the public markets. You're, you're having to take a, a considerable risk asset wise uh, to generate that. And that's why you're seeing in the marketplace, a lot of people move to investing in private debt funds because they're cash flow uh, focused. You might get that payout on a monthly or quarterly basis. Now I throw up our risk and return and I put our fund on there. Uh, and of course it's gonna be different with different risks with each fund, but it does give you kind of an idea about the, the benefits here that you can see some pretty outsized returns compared to even the, the standard fixed income in the public markets. Like, you know, the, there's the, the REITs or, you know, even like bonds. Bonds have done horrible the last uh, you know, few years. So that's a, and they're risky too, because the pricing goes up and down. Uh, I mean, I don't have time to go into all that, but and basically this is one reason why we're seeing a lot of investors turn to these private debt funds is because of the great return risk profile you can get. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, especially in high degrees of uncertainty, having asset backed, stable, like contractually obligated return profiles is a really attractive thing for a lot of people. Now, granted, you know, you can say debt and then, yeah, you make the correlation to bonds, but, you know, until, you know, Jerome over at the Fed started, you know, going hammer with the rate increases, you know, you don't really start <laughs> seeing that bond um, yield start to change at all, you know, especially with the last few years, you know, it's just mm -hmm. been getting crushed. So yeah. having something backed by more tangible than just the good faith, you know, something backed by tangible assets rather than the good faith of the government right, is right. really attractive to a lot of people. And something that we've seen a lot of over the past 20 years at Advanta is a consistent turn. And it's, you know, been indicative of the growth of our business of people finding more value in this and, you know, looking at that, you know, even through, uh, you know, going through the six, seven, eight crash era, you know, still seeing the value of real estate backed or tangible backed mm -hmm. assets when it comes to investing. And especially on the debt side, um, you know, we see that kind of ebb and flow as different markets happen, but it's always been a very strong uh, underpinning of what a lot of our clients look at is the debt side of things, especially again, once risk profiles change, like you mentioned, people getting older, mm -hmm. they're saying, look, what can I get a steady return on that doesn't have kind of to worry about so many extraneous factors because at the end of the day, they want to keep these properties. So making sure that those payments are made is a very high priority. Yeah. Now, uh, one thing, you know, because we kind of mentioned like one of the reasons that drives people to look at steady income is, you know, where you're at in your career, life, et cetera. Uh, I, I want to look at the next slide, though, because I want to bring up something that's going to be super surprising, I think, to a lot of you. Uh, so if you're if you're not yet hitting your you know late 40s and 50s and thinking about those things or, or longer, let's say you're you're in your 20s and you're working on your first uh, self-directed IRA on this. Well, here's a reason why steady income or steady returns matter so much. This may be shocking you because everybody thinks, oh, but the over the long term, the, the stock market, you know, it really returns better than almost everything. And I question like, is that really true? Because what's not being considered is the volatility here. So let me ask a question. 
and really this is rhetorical, of course. So you want $207,000, you want $1,300,000 from a $100,000 return. So if you were looking at 10% annual returns, starting at $100,000, but you had the high volatility, uh, this is pretty high, obviously with stock market, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. It's been pretty, pretty volatile over the last couple of years here. But the idea here is look at what happens to returns. You think, okay, over a 10% average return over a, you know, a 30-year period, that should get me a lot of money, right? Well, not, not necessarily, because even if you went 50% up in that first year and then went down 30%, you've got to start to, you, your return profile has to become larger and larger to make up for those losses. So that is why volatility, even though it's not something talked about a lot, you know, in the retail investment or among wealth advisors or anything like that, you don't talk about volatility. It's kind of the dirty secret of uh, a lot of public public uh, investments such as stocks because the volatility will affect your ending returns by a huge, huge amount. And you may be scratching your head sometimes looking at your statement over a number of of years going, I don't get it. Why am I not making more money? I thought stocks were supposed to, you know, over time, give me a lot more. Um, but that volatility really affects you. So what would happen if you took an average return that was actually less, but you had steady returns compounded? Let's take a look at the next slide. Yeah, and, and to a point to your last slide too. I mean, this is making, these these numbers are making the basic assumption on one, stable inflation, so, mm -hmm. you know, that 10% return, okay, well, over that 30-year period, did you have a 10% inflationary increase? Well, then did you really make any money? Yeah. You know, yeah, and then, for sure. You know, it's 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 all these kind of things, you know, yes, it, these things do return those kind of averages over the long run. And most everyone should be looking at at least some type of, you know, longer term investment strategy um, is going mm -hmm. to pay off and, you know, is typically yeah. going to pay off for you. But that's just also something to look at, you know, it's- yeah. And I, I really do kind of believe in, you know, go to the next slide, but, um, you know, just in what you're talking about, the ability to compound those returns, reinvestment over a long-term period with low risk profiles is a really powerful tool. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you'll take a look at this and you're going, seriously, that's the difference? And really, yes. Am I giving kind of an outsized volatility on the on the previous one? Yes, I am. But it's more of to to sort of I want to burn it into everybody's brain that volatility matters when you look at your portfolio. And again, I'm not saying don't have any stocks. Not what I'm saying. I've got some stocks in our portfolio. But when you look at that, just make sure that you're considering volatility and the effects and effects on on that part of your portfolio versus where you think. Yeah, but I'm only getting 9% or an 8% or whatever it is on this low risk thing. It just doesn't pay me enough. Does it really? Yeah, absolutely. And and again, the power of, you know, it's it's kind of a, a kitsch term, but the power of compounding returns. It's, you know, yep. if you make 50%, but then lose 20, lose, you know, a net, it's it's the, the slower steady one that you can compound over time is going to pay off more. Kind of, it's, there was the adage of, you know, would you rather have, a million dollars today or a penny that doubled every day for 15 days. Uh, you know, it's, it's like that. It's like, Oh, I want the million. It's like, no, you want that penny. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, all right. So, you know, we've covered a lot of the joys. Let's talk about a little bit of tax considerations here uh, because a lot of debt funds are not tax advantaged in a sense. So interest income tax, 
uh, is usually based on the structure of the of the funds. So if you're looking at some funds, they're going to be out there, have a read or a sub read structure. Those are a little bit better. Uh, if you don't, then you, you're, you're going to want to use some sort of tax advantage usually. Now, you can do that a couple of ways. Uh, you know, honestly, I think one of the best ways is self-directed IRAs, 401ks. Of course, you know, what Advanta offers, what Alex uh, offers is, is coming through them, which is an incredibly great way to sort of avoid that taxation on these uh, on these type of funds. You can also offset with passive losses. So if you've got some uh, pass-through depreciation from real estate equity investments or something like that, of course, that's going to offset that as well. But it's it's a definitely something, you know, you don't want to have the tax uh, horse drive the cart, so to say, but you definitely want to take this into consideration. Uh, and, and that's one nice thing about having a custodian like Advanta uh, to invest in these type of, of tax uh, th that are great, great at growth, but not necessarily the, the best tax advantage. Alex, you can probably say more about this. Than yeah, I absolutely. But one question I have is that when you invest in these types of funds, mm -hmm. The underlying income that's derived from them, how is that cal what is that reported as? Is that going to be a long-term capital gain? Is that ordinary income? How does that normally pass through to an investor? Um, you know, it, it's going to be what paid out on K1 as interest income on the investment? There's a few funds out there that pay out on a 1099. I think you're going to find the vast majority of well-run funds, <clears throat> excuse me, are are paid out on K1s. You, because you come in as an LP investor mm -hmm. uh, into the fund. So you're basically a member. And, and as a member of that uh, of that fund, you're going to get a K-1. And that K-1 is going to show interest income, which is taxed at your normal income tax rates, if if you're not, of course, in an IRA. Yeah, exactly. Just because I, I know that what you're, you're in, in what you can only offset $3,000 per year of ordinary income with investment losses, um, I think. So you'd have to claim that from other type of like asset depreciation. Um, yes. losses. Again, I... I always have to disclaim, I'm not a tax advisor. I'm just a nerd yeah. for taxes. Um, so, you yeah. know, trust but verify, check with that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. yeah, but- Definitely point, see your CPA on, <laughs> yeah. on this kind of thing. <laughs> I would say, see a good CPA. Um, you know, don't, don't go, don't yeah. go to H&R Block in Walmart. Um, go to someone that's been doing it for a while. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just, I had a fantastic podcast with a guy, um, uh, Micah Frame out of Tennessee, who specializes in cryptocurrency and, and taxation. And uh, this was kind of a big topic of the fact that um, wash sales are not illegal in cryptocurrency investments. So people can generate kind of loss farming um, mm. in cryptocurrency right now, which I found was interesting. Yeah. But not to digress too much into that subject. But yeah, doing this kind of stuff through IRAs is really interesting, especially if you're invested strictly in something that is originating debt. Uh, one mm -hmm. thing that I do like to clear up is that um, IRAs specifically have kind of a wonky tax issue when you invest into an asset that has underlying commercial debt. So if you're in an equity position uh, and then the the fund has taken on debt to acquire assets, they're not originating the debt. You have an issue with what's called UDFI or unweighted debt finance income That's tax, right. which not to get, I can get really far into the weeds. I talk for hours on this stuff, but <laughs> suffice it to say it kind of muddies the water with the great tax advantage nature of doing retirement plan investing. But if you are investing in the debt, the origination, like, you know, your IRA is going out and making a loan or you're investing in someone that is making those loans, you don't have to worry about that. So you get the security of the underlying real estate, you get those returns, but don't have to worry about that uh, really kind of, you know, bespoke tax that's associated with that. Now yeah. with a 401k, you don't have to worry about it at all. So long as that the acquisition debt is for real estate, again, 
whole other kind of topic to get into. But um, that's a big thing for important for people to understand when they hear debt and they hear IRAs, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, well, I saw this thing. I don't want to do that. Not necessarily the case. It's the, it's, it's the, it's having debt associated with the acquisition of something. That's the issue for an IRA, not investing in someone that is originating debt. That's the issue. Right. That's right. Yeah. And that's where, you know, when you, and again, I think once you, you get to a certain point in life uh, and you're, you're got, uh, and you have more than just, let's say a W2 job, you've got now some, some investments that are worth, uh, you know, a million or more. That's really the time you should consider getting a, a professional, good quality CPA who knows this stuff can really help you with your taxes. Um, just I've seen, especially for me as an underwriter, I look at tax returns all the time for our borrowers. And we really, it, it's, a, it's sort of the automatic red flag when we see someone with self-prepared tax returns, because almost always we see someone that's made a mistake. And don't think that using TurboTax is going to help you not do that mistake. It's just not made for those kind of sophisticated tax returns. It's made for, oh, I'm Joe Blow with my W-2 and I've got you know a little bit of knee trade and that's about it. Once you get beyond that, go get yourself a good tax preparer CPA. That's that's just my best advice. Yeah, and and then beyond- prevention is worth it. An ounce of prevention is a big pound of cure in that one. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're probably going to save you more money than they're going to cost you. Honestly, with, with tax, you know, with with helping you get better on your taxes and, and, and tax advantaged, um, for sure. So, I, you know, we, we could honestly, there's enough here that you could have a whole another deep dive on what, where, where to sit, what investment in IRA, four hundred one k versus your non retirement money. I mean, that that we can get totally in the weeds with that, oh, but yeah. I don't think we have time today. So, all right, let's let's now kind of dive into the risks uh, of of looking at debt funds because there's there's certainly some risks uh and and almost every investment unless you're talking about uh you know investing in a cd at your local bank so uh, you know there's going to be some risks so let's take a look at what those are so um first of all let me just I, i'm i'm going to sort of go over a few things here that are more debt uh focused but the reality here is that there's way too much to cover due diligence. And we have a separate webinar that actually done by uh, our, my partner and also the uh, chief investment officer for Kirkland Capital, uh, Chris Carsley, who does a much deeper dive into due diligence. Uh, and that's you would you would help yourself by going and listening to that and watching that as well. But I'm going to touch on a few debt focused ones. So to touch on a few, and again, this is not an exhaustive list here, but you want to, these are some questions you want to ask before investing in a debt fund. Are they on the administrative side? Are they administered by a third party administrator? Or no, I'm doing all my own stuff. <laughs> kind of going back to getting your own CPA sometimes. You know, you, you shouldn't be having people that are doing all their own stuff. It's just too easy to make mistakes. You got nobody looking over their shoulder. So you want to see that they have a third party administrator who's who's uh, accepted in in the uh, in the industry. On the audit side, uh, is their debt fund audited? Are they? Are, and you can ask. You know, people do ask us sometimes to see. Hey, can we see your audited returns or your your, your audited financial statements? Absolutely, we'll send it to you. That's the whole reason we do that. Is is we want people to feel confident that we've got. Not only a third-party administrator, but is that is the is the firm or is the investment fund audited? Is there dual controls on money? Can can someone just go in there and go, hey, I'm gonna you know send 
a million dollars to my Kaylin account and take off. Well, if you got dual controls where two people have to authorize things, you got a lot less chance for anything to go wrong there. Uh, legal, you know, make sure I know they're boring. I, you know, they can run anywhere from 60 to 80, 100 pages for a PPM, that private placement memorandum. But I, I beg you, read those. That has all the fees in there. That has all the risks in there. Uh, it, it makes sure that down the road, you don't go, what? You did what? I thought you could only do debt. You're going and doing equity. You're going and gambling with my money. The, well, I, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do You didn't read the PPM. That's so we could do that. Read your PPMs. Make sure what that fund manager is allowed to do and allowed to charge you. Uh, and also, you know, read the operating. Usually those are much smaller, but read your PPMs. And then the, the really some of the things you're looking at in, in the fees and expenses are in that PPM is what uh, they and you as the investor being rewarded for for additional risk. I've looked at a lot of PPMs in this business in, in the debt side. Uh, you've got PPMs or, or, or you've got places where uh, I've even seen it that a manager is rewarding themselves for taking extra risk. So if I go make a loan, a risky loan, to somebody and I charge them 18%, am I passing that additional money that we're making on the interest rate to the investors? Or am I taking that spread and I'm giving you 9%? Oh, I'm giving all my investors 9%, but I'm, oh yeah, if I can make a, a really high interest rate run on a risky thing, I'm going to take that eight, that 18% and I'm going to pocket that 9% as a manager. Well, basically, you're now rewarding your the 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 fund manager for you the risk that you took. Well, I'm not quite sure that's fair. I'm not saying there's anything illegal or wrong with it because there's not. Um, but unfortunately, that's one reason you need to read those PPMs. Look and see is your manager aligned with you as an investor on the risk side. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's even, and, it, and it's things that it kind of gets to that kind of micro level, but even things, um, one thing to look at is that, you know, what is the return structure look like? Is it a return on capital or is it a return of capital? Because yeah. you can get washed out of an investment and lose an entire great tax benefit if you're getting returns of capital instead of return on your capital and the underlying equity and the in investment. Not to say that, again, there aren't places for that, but just understand like, small words of of and on can have a huge impact. Um, and especially with markets getting tight, you know, mm -hmm. good people are going to do good business, but it also opens up for questionable people to start making bad decisions. So yeah. reading these things, and I'd encourage people, even if, you know, these things are not the easiest thing to get through. Um, you know, I've had to read through a lot of them. And even still, I'm like, kind of like, eh, what is going on here? You know, pay an attorney for an hour of their time, or maybe pay them a little extra to show you how to read this stuff. Um, you mm -hmm. know, again, the ounce of prevention being worth a lot of cure in this scenario. Um, you know, there are people out there that can help you with these things. I wouldn't maybe necessarily go to your investment provider to ask them how to read their PPM because, <laughs> you know, they're going to highlight a lot of stuff. But, you know, go to a qualified third party. Again, going back to having a good CPA, um, you know, having good counsel around you that can help navigate these things that are, again, alternatives, not mainstream. It's going to really help you out in the long run. Yeah. So that was the operational bit, some of the high highlights of risk there. Let's, let's look uh, next at sort of the investment side. So, you know, are these pool or individual loans? There's there's uh, debt providers out there that basically sell you a piece of an individual loan, particularly when they get large. Uh, nothing wrong with that. It's just a different risk profile because that means that you're making an investment in one loan 
Or is it a pooled fund where your money is distributed across all the loans in the portfolio? So, you know, that's the ask you about diversification. Um, you know, and actually a lot of these are diverse. You can consider whether they're diversified or not. But geography, uh, you know, is it just concentrated in one state? Oh, this is a California. Uh, I, I'm only picking on California because there's a lot of California debt funds out there that's only focused in California. Well, okay, then you need to consider is do I want to be concentrated in California? What are the legal or even political uh, uh, risks of that. Uh, right now, we just saw the one of the courts in California come down and say, "Oh, hey, if you're if you go in and, and uh, go into default on a, a loan or you didn't pay on time, you can you're only allowed to charge default interest on the actual payment that's late, not on the entire amount." Oh, wow! You just gave permission to everybody just to basically ignore payment. I, I mean, all you did was make it really difficult to uh, cause someone to decide that, hey, I better pay this because it's going to get too painful, you know, a debtor. So, I, I mean, there's some craziness going on out there. Pay attention to it being spread probably among multiple geographies. It is, is, is could be a much better thing because then you're not stuck if one thing goes wrong in a particular geography or state. Uh, asset types. So, you know, are you concentrating one? You know, office used to be, the darling of class A debt funds, I, you know, and even on the, you know, and right now we're seeing a lot of uh, doom and gloom headlines, I'd say right now, oh, CRE is crashing. And then you start to read the article and realize, oh, they're only talking about office. Um, you know, so so what's wrong with office? That could be another whole conversation. I think a lot of it right now with all the remote work and everything, we're not, we're not done seeing bloodletting in that. Uh, or are you hotel or are you multifamily? I mean, there's a lot of different appetites. Each have their strengths and weaknesses uh, over time or at a particular time in the economy or, or at a particular time in where we are in the economic cycle. Uh, single family, that's fix and flip. That's a whole different asset uh, type as well with its own issues and, uh, and, and, and uh, pros and cons, so to say. Uh, another thing to look at and a question to ask or look in that PPM is the manager using leverage to boost returns. So, you know, you wonder like, okay, how is this manager or how is this debt fund returning, uh, let's say 13 or 14%, but they're only charging 8% on a loan. Well, they're using leverage. They're they're for every dollar of money that they lend out to specifically, they're actually borrowing money from a third party source, a bank or or someone providing that that line of credit in order to boost that. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? It's not a right or wrong here. It's about where you are in the risk. Leverage can move both ways. It can be great in boosting returns, but if something goes wrong, uh, that can crash you real fast if you you have high leverage on that debt fund. Yeah, I never even would have noticed. Uh, I don't think I've ever really run into uh, kind of the debt booster issue, at least nothing that I've ever read through. Um, is that something a little bit more nuanced or new, or is it like a really specific use case? Like, when would you ever really see that? Uh, actually, it's very, very common. If you go start reading the PPMs of most debt funds, particularly a lot of the fix and flip ones, they are using massive amounts of leverage, sometimes one to one. So, if if let's say they've got a debt fund of Fifty million dollars. They're going and borrowing another fifty million. The challenge here is that when things go south on a loan, yeah, you could be left with nothing because they have to, by covenants, pay that debt provider, uh, you know, the leverage provider first before any of their investors. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because and it, that's just probably due to the fact that you know most of the stuff that I read through is more. <laughs> It's more like fintech, uh, commercial, like acquisition, real estate, stuff like that. Um, I can't really think of the last time <laughs> I've read a debt fund. I mean, probably if it come to think about it, I probably only read like one or two. So um, yeah, it's really interesting that it's a really specific use case in that market. And just maybe like a quick blurb, like why is it why is it more common in the debt fund space? Well, it's it's the way that you're able to provide outsized returns to investors. So that's how you can go out, particularly in a low interest rate environment, and offer a six, seven, eight uh, percent, and c- compete in the marketplace. Especially when you start talking about larger loans, where the competition is really heavy in those. You know, your ten million dollar bridge loan. Well, I've got to offer it. You know, maybe last previous to this this year, you would have had to offer it at maybe four percent or five percent for a bridge, but. You know, you're going to have to offer a lot more to your investors to get them to invest in that fund. So you put leverage on that and now you're paying out maybe eight or nine percent to your investors. That's where that leverage comes in. Gotcha. And again, I'm not saying leverage is bad or wrong. It's sometimes it's about, you know, amount, you know, like even we as a debt fund, we don't have leverage right now. We were considering that we'll probably add a bit, maybe up to 30 to 40 percent. And more of it's just to be efficient. So if we don't have quite enough money to cover, a new loan comes in. This allows us to go grab a little bit of that leverage, make that loan. Uh, and so we don't have uh, cash drag o- on the fund. So, Makes sense. But, you know, because we're using a fairly low amount, it's not necessarily a something to boost uh, our, our returns by a huge amount because we're gotcha. very cognizant for us of being low risk. No, that's interesting. I always, I always uh, feel bad when I don't learn something new when I do these podcasts. So it's, uh, it's always great to uh, not only bring new information to people, but for myself to be better educated. So great. Uh, moving on. Yeah, and one of the last, uh, the uh, yeah, let's move on to asset evaluation. So this is probably one of the most important things. I mean, not that any of the others are important, but we need to really consider how value assets are valued. And really, this is the importance of V and the LTV there. How is that value in the loan-to-value assessed? Is it as is value? So when someone says, oh, yeah, we're we're only at 60% L, you know, loan-to-values on these things. Okay, how are you determining that value? Oh, we take the, the after-repair value. Okay, well, that's not the same as as-is current value. After-repair value is a, a, a guess. It might be an educated guess, but it's basically taking it, and these are used on a lot of fix and flips, a lot of fix and flip debt funds. This is what they use, is they'll say, okay, you're buying a house for $100,000. Uh, you're going to put $50,000 into it, and then we think it's going to worth be worth $250,000, okay? So your after-repair value is two fifty, but you bought it for hundred. What's the as-is value? The as-is value right now is $100,000. But you're going out and making a hundred and fifty thousand dollar loan on this place. Well, and then you're saying, oh, well, no, no, hundred fifty thousand divided by two fifty. I, I don't know. I can't do the math in my, my head. But I mean, oh yeah, we're only at sixty. We're a low LTV on this. Well, are you really? You're basing it on the fact that you're going to go do these repairs, and you hope that six months, nine months down the road, when you go to sell that, the market holds up, and you you actually will sell that at two fifty. Now, just not long ago, you know, a year ago, uh, you know, it was a safe bet, I guess, because, you know, you were, you, were, you were seeing this rise, you know, house prices were going up like crazy. 
And so in rising environments of rising house prices, this this tends to work really well because it's, hey, I'm, I'm making this bet and I'm going to I'm going to have this future value of 250. I know we're going to sell it, but the markets turn really, really fast. And all of a sudden now you're left holding uh, debt at 150. Oh, but wait a second. I can't sell it for 250 anymore. I can only sell it for 150. Well, that's where again ask how how is valuation done um <clears throat> and then the second thing is who assesses the value so let's take a look at that there's a lot of ways to assess value uh we've seen uh and, and let's look, look at the common types of assessment ne next slide please there's a lot of ways to look at assessments here uh so a common one out there that was very popular sometimes with fix and flips, et cetera, was BPOs or broker price opinions. And I've got a little picture of a belly button there because this is our opinion on broker price opinions. They're like belly buttons. Everybody's got one. I don't think they're worth much at all. It's a, basically a broker price opinion is having a real estate agent go out and drive by the property, maybe even go in the property and you know, take a few minutes, run a few comps and, oh, here, here's, here's what you got. There's no deep due diligence. There's no, um, it's just, it's, they look all different. There's no, nobody really looking over their shoulder to provide these things. So yeah, it's, they're it's generally not acceptable. Yeah. Too dependent on the, the human factor. I mean, it's, you know, you get, you get someone that's been a commercial real estate broker for 40 years that is, you know, as honest as the weather. And, you know, they can probably give you a great one. Like it probably almost match up to a full appraisal, but you also yeah. get someone that gives you the same thing. That's, you know, just got their brokerage license, been doing this for six years and probably one of the best real estate markets we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're going to get something wildly different. Yep. Uh, then there's hybrid. Uh, we use a lot of these where you you might have the an agent go out and take pictures and do the boots on the ground, take a bunch of pictures, draw out, look at a bunch of stuff. Then what they do is they actually submit it back to uh, a, a, an underwriter, uh, I'm sorry, an underwriter and an actual appraiser, a licensed appraiser who sits at the decks, takes those photos, looks up the comps and does all the, the work then to pull together that, uh, that sort of uh, appra appraisal. Uh, these are more and more common. A lot of it is because, uh, particularly in the commercial side, we are we have such a huge shortage of appraisers. So uh, your average appraiser out there is, I think, in their 60s on, on the commercial side. Uh, so that's where we've seen the rise of these hybrid. We like the hybrid. We think they're good. Of course, you know, it, it, it pays to ask more questions, you know, to a debt fund. Tell me a little bit about how this hybrid works. Is it actual appraiser? that actually looks at this or is it just maybe a BPO plus someone doing a second check? You know, it just pays to ask those questions. Uh, there's automated valuation models out there as well. You know, think Zillow, there's a bunch of competing mo uh, models as well that, that work out there. We've seen this in some other debt funds where they're just simply running AVMs on, uh, particularly on the housing market. You don't see it as much on a commercial side just because there's a lot more difference in the commercial side. It, it's harder to do an AVM. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, the sort of the gold standard still is a full appraisal. But on a commercial appraisal, these start at three to four or five thousand dollars. So it's it's a very expensive. It can take sometimes four to six weeks to get one. So a lot of debt funds have gone to, you know, hybrid, that kind of thing in order to try to speed things up. 
uh, when speed of execution is, or especially on the smaller loans, like, you know, asking someone who's doing a $500,000 loan for a mixed use property, you know, in, in, you know, in uh, somewhere in the middle of America, uh, asking them to pay $5,000 for a full appraisal. It's, it's a, it's a tough nut to swallow. So that's where we go with the hybrid, which are usually less than a thousand dollars, but ask about what they use and who they use for assessments. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, you got to understand, you know, <laughs> hopefully you're putting out, you know, capital that is, you know, a, a correctly attributable to that. You know, that that's a great example you gave of the, you know, the after repair, what's the actual, actual value of it right now? Because, you yeah. know, you're, you're essentially you're gambling at that point. I mean, it's, I mean, any investment is a gamble to an extent, Um, you know, you are, you know, making, taking a calculated risk and putting your capital in somewhere that you think will grow. But Again, especially like we've seen some of the common threads of issues with real estate market crashes has been valuation based. You know, that's how Mm -hmm. we got into so much trouble with income verification and inflated valuations uh, on the 2008. I mean, that was part of this bunch of other things that went on with that. But, you know, you saw that happen in the 90s. You had it see it happen in the 80s. I mean, you see it happen over and over again where it's a key component is the valuations on these assets, getting people into trouble when it comes to over leverage mm-hmm. or bad leveraging. Yep. One reason we uh, like the commercial side a little more is valuation tends to be a bit more, well, not a bit more. Valuations on commercial properties tend to be much more steady day in and day out. There's exceptions. I mean, right now we're seeing a, a real, a right, da- huge write downs in the office. Uh, so I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but generally you have far more steady valuations. And a lot of that is because it's income driven. Uh, whereas in the housing market, it's a very emotional driven thing. Oh, I feel this neighborhood's great now. It's up and coming. And I like this house. I mean, you're not talking about it's income driven, whereas commercial valuations, a lot of them are income driven. It's the cash flow driver versus like the, 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 the retail sale aspect of, of single mm-hmm. family, the velocity of, of trade in that area is it's much higher uh, when you look at just, you know, again, the velocity of money in the sales side for single family versus the relatively stable sales, relatively again, apples to oranges, but that would it being income driven of saying, okay, the valuation is much more pegged, not on, you know, what the sale of this property would do, but you know, what are the rent rolls look like? What are my, what are my, you know, expense ratios to it? What are, what's my deferred maintenance? Yes. You know, how much yep. depreciation do I have on this kind of thing? So it's a completely different, you know, model to look at. And it's important for people to understand that when it comes to, you know, making the jump from single family or making the jump from single family debt, especially let's call mm-hmm. it single family debt. If you're a debt investor, yeah. a loan, you know, an investor, loan originator yeah. and single family, yeah, you can use a lot of those skills like you have of looking at valuations and worthiness of people to lend money to, or especially if you're invested into a fund. But again, it's a completely different animal when it comes to a lot of these different things that you're looking at. Use those skills, but build on them. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. That sort of wraps it up for risks. Next slide. I'm not going to spend much, but uh, we are a debt fund ourselves. <laughs> That's why yeah. you know, my background with this as well. Um, feel free to reach out if you want to uh, ask more questions. I'm happy to answer whatever difficult question. I doubt I'm going to see anything new, but uh, I'd love to be surprised after three years of doing our own debt fund here uh, if I've got a new question but happy to answer questions uh, from the audience uh, later on. Just send it over. And then uh, you can get a hold of us. Next slide, please. 
at uh, kirkencapitalgroup.com. And uh, we do have a newsletter where we talk about a lot of uh, due diligence stuff and educational stuff. Yeah, great. Really appreciate it, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. It was it's uh, the first time we've done a two part series with uh, with anyone, but I really am happy with I think the way this is going to turn out. Uh, you know, we always love bringing new you know perspectives on investing and you know good information. The the deep dive that Chris and I did on uh, you know depending <clears throat> on which order you're listening to these two, the the deep dive is fantastic on due diligence. You know, I've talked about due diligence in the past, but. I'm kind of nerdy on that stuff and that, you know, I like to read these kind of things. I like to read PPMs and tax law and stuff like that. So, you know, getting a really, you know, a very, very seasoned financial professional like Chris going through due diligence for, for an extended period of time was awesome. And then talking about bridge debt and how that equates here with Brock was also very informative, you know, awesome content. So I'm really appreciative that y'all both took, you know, the better parts of your days to kind of sit down, do this with us, bring some good information to people on, you know, different alternatives and, and ways of looking at things. So again, really appreciate appreciate you being with all of us, Brock. If anyone has any questions for them, I uh, gave out his contact information and we'll certainly put that out as well. So again, thanks everyone for joining us for another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney. Thanks for joining us. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.